0: It's super easy. Just go to current.com slash OK, OKAY, and download the app. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm joined by Deirdre Bosa. She is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. Debo, welcome.
1: Hello. Always happy to be here.
0: Big day, big week for you. Uh, a couple big tech IPOs. Not something that you've been that active in as a reporter, as a CNBC TV host, me as an investor or a pundit either. So we're gonna hit nobody.
1: Uh, it's frozen yeah. shut.
0: I know we, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to figure out like uh, our old pitches here to talk about these things if they do come back here in a meaningful way. But that's obviously Instacart this week today Tuesday, and then ARM last week, and there's a few more that we can talk about. What we're looking forward to also. When Dee and I um, are done with our conversation, stick around for a conversation I had with Katie Stanton. She is the general partner and founder at Moxie Ventures, also with a portfolio company CEO, a really interesting guy, Quinn Kramer. He is the co-founder and CEO of Daily. That's a, a video infrastructure software company doing a lot of interesting things in and around creators and helping them to monetize. Also, integration of machine learning and a whole host of our favorite buzzwords as it relates to AI, large language models, generative, all this stuff. That was Quinn Kramer, and he is a multiple-time founder and a brilliant guy. So Katie and I really enjoyed that conversation. All right, Dee, let's get to it. Instacart, finally, this is a name, this is a company that you've known for a very long time. It's had a handful of different iterations. It was the ugly redheaded stepchild for a while in the delivery business. And then they changed some things up. They added a few different things in the pandemic and they had this huge valuation surge. And now this thing comes to market finally, and it's a perceived down round. They raised last, you and I talked about it last week at 39 billion a couple of years ago. This IPO prices it at, in around $10 billion or so, What is some of your initial take? The stock opened, it was priced at 30, opened at 42, trading at 36 as we are recording here Tuesday afternoon. Any thoughts here? Because I know that you've been talking to a lot of different investors, people in tech in general, some others in the media. Thoughts?
1: This is yet another gig economy company to come public. The first one, I would say, was they were Uber and Lyft a few years ago. No one knew how to value the things. And they haven't proved actually that interesting or that compelling as an investment because before they were public, you thought about these things as not very capital intensive. They didn't own the cars. They didn't own the drivers. You think, okay, this should be a business that makes money. And then bam, you found out it's not. It's a business that loses billions and billions of dollars. In that sense, we thought we knew what we were getting with Instacart, but there was some sizzle to it, to the IPO. And that was, of course, its advertising business. You could see that, okay, while the gig economy stuff, the grocery delivery side of the business, which is its core, doesn't look like a tech company in the same way that Peloton isn't a tech company, even though they'll say that they will. But advertising does have those characteristics. It's a lot higher margin to ramp it up. Little incremental costs. And so that, that was interesting for investors and for me to see, because as you said, Dan, I've been covering this company for so long. And I remember years ago when I went to first go visit the founder, Porva Meta and his CFO at the time, they said, you're going to be surprised. We have a big advertising and enterprise business. And I said, yeah, okay. I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) So it was one of these S1s I was waiting for. I think it took them 15 months just to go public from when they filed confidentially. So you know, it did live up to those expectations. But on the other side of it, this is a company that isn't growing anymore. Saw this huge pandemic boom. So how do you continue to build that advertising business on a base that isn't really growing.
0: Yeah. And I, I guess the margin thing is really important too, when you think about it, because the, like the bears on all of these gig economy stocks, we'll just talk about how the unique economics of these companies are really bad, but you throw in something like advertising. And it's something that I know you spent some time reporting on with Uber. I mean, it's a very high margin business and it's something that I've found it is just a power user of Uber. I, I feel like they're doing a good job serving ads. They're relevant to some of the things that they know you're doing. And again, you're talking about Companies that some of the margins look like kind of mid to high 40% or so, at least they are, for like a DoorDash, and you start to throw in advertising revenue that comes at sometimes double that margin, right? And so that's probably how you could justify some of these valuations. Last week, we talked about bankers having to bring the Instacart at a discount to DoorDash. DoorDash is going to be profitable, marginally profitable, I think on a gap basis next year, trading a little over three times sales and you have Instacart, not too much of a discount. So it'll be interesting to see the how this stock trades. It had that one-day pop. The bankers, they think about those one-day pops in, in, in two different ways, right? It can be a double-edged sword, right? You can either... Um, have too big of a pop and, and give too much to the people that you place the shares right. with. And, and that obviously comes at the expense of the company, which is selling those shares, right? And it looks like the bankers did a bad job, but it depends who's looking at it, or the other way around, they get the valuation right. I think this thing, the last time they raised capital in 2021 at 39 billion, right. now you have a 10 billion total valuation for this company. This is one where I think the bankers, I think everybody involved in these processes, if we're trying to get this IPO market. Kicked up again, things have to go right here, and I'm just curious how you think about that because again if if you if this thing doubled on its opening day, that's not a great job by the bankers. You're leaving a lot on the table for the companies, and then it opens the door for those conversations we heard about direct listings and and other ways to come publics back and the like.
1: One quick thing on the advertising model is I would say that Instacart feels a lot more compelling than an Uber or DoorDash. You're going on an Uber at least to get a car or get restaurant delivery. You're going on Instacart to shop. That's why PepsiCo buying shares in private placement was so important because for CPG companies, it's hard to think of a better platform than Instacart. There's the intent to buy. They've got the data to feed their customers similar goods. There's differentiation by branding. I just think that the business model for Instacarton, which is maybe why they figured it out before their gig economy peers, makes a lot of sense and is more interesting than it is for some of the other gig companies. As to what this means for the broader IPO market, what you're talking about, you can't pop too much. (laughs) You can't not pop at all. It's the Goldilocks syndrome, right? I think I said about Arm. It was the Goldilocks IPO. It popped around 20, 25% or so. And that's fine because they didn't leave money on the table. In the case of Instart, it doesn't matter because they weren't raising very much money anyways. And this float is so small that I think it's harder to say that this was a good or bad pop because ultimately, it doesn't really mean anything. And the real IPO, or at least indication, is going to come when that lockup period expires. Arm has one investor, SoftBank. They stand to win or lose. It's an individual decision whether they sell or not. And Masa could do what he did with Alibaba, use those shares and arms as leverage. He can sell them down to invest more in AI. But there are nearly a 100 investors in Instacart, all with very different aims. The traditional venture capitalists, they should want to get out because that is the business model. But even that is changing. And then you've got the institutional investors like Fidelity and T. Rowe who may hold on. They may not plus all the retail investors and the employees, by the way, who will get to sell out before that official six-month lockup period. So you could see some volatility going forward. And I think that this is a unique IPO that isn't necessarily going to mean all that much for the broader markets. It's
0: interesting because when you think about the excitement that normally comes with a, a company coming to the public markets, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but I think it's important to note is that, listen, if you're an institutional investor, you've been offered shares of Instacart for years in the secondary market, right? You've been offered it the whole way up in 2020 and 2021 at crazy valuations and some very healed, highly esteemed venture companies participated in Instacart at 39 million, Sequoia, Andreessen Harwitz, a couple of them. And, And again, I know that they probably all had stakes that were much lower. And so Who is the incremental buyer, right? And so oftentimes when it's a consumer-facing company like an Instacart, this might be the first time for retail investors who use the the product or the services to have access to it. So again, I think that Instacart is probably not going anywhere, in in my opinion, not at the valuation that it was priced at and given the growth expectations. And if you look at a DoorDash, the valuations aren't too particularly different, but this one's going to be profitable most likely and only expected to grow sales for the next couple of years. 17%. So that's not gangbusters sort of growth. The flip side with Arm, I thought this was really interesting too, because oftentimes there's two things that are highlighted that are overhangs as far as uh, when a company goes public. One of them obviously being the lockups uh, that insiders can sell, which you just mentioned in the case of Instacart, there's a lot of shares that are going to come up lock over the next few months into the fall. And if this company does not execute well out of the gate, I think there's a lot of risk to it at the current valuation. And so I think it was also interesting that Arm, there was a research report out of Bernstein this week. Now, Sanford Bernstein, which what it used to be called, they don't have investment banking. They take a lot of pride in the fact that they can be honest brokers, in quotes here a little bit, when they're doing equity research because they don't have to worry about getting investment banking uh, mandates from companies. And they mm-hmm. basically threw a lot of cold water on the narrative that emerged over the last few months or so as the roadshow took off with arm that that really like positioning this as less of like a kind of legacy smartphone and and, and chip licensor and and moving more into ai and the stock has come down pretty hard it's down at 55 as we're recording right now i think it got as high as maybe 65 so it's round trip the whole post ipo pop that it had over the last week Thoughts on that, because again, talking about people playing the game, you put your order in if yeah. you're a hedge fund or a mutual fund, you get a $15 pop over a couple of days. Oftentimes, you sell and you look to buy it lower. And Bernstein throwing a little kind of gasoline on the fire here that this is maybe not the AI story that some initial buyers on the IPO thought. That That's something that I think is pretty interesting. And, and again, in about a week or two, I think we're going to have probably a couple dozen investment banks over the next few weeks initiate on this stock. So it'll be interesting to see where some of the other bankers and some of the other research analysts shake out on this one.
1: We've been looking at this past week on CNBC and we've been just wanting to provide a little bit of caution, especially for retail investors, that if you look back over the last let's call it four years, and you invested at the time of that IPO pop, which may be appealing, right? Because as you said, Instacart is a household name. People may be familiar with using the app and think, okay, it's going public at a discount. It's not $39 billion, it's $10 billion. There may be a desire to buy in, but we looked and if history is any indication, it's an absolutely terrible time to buy. Even the most successful IPOs of the last few years, Airbnb and Snowflake, if you had bought on that first day peak, you'd still be down, even though they're up from their IPO prices. So there is that hype cycle. And, and what's interesting about this round, Dan, and I think I've been talking about is the role of cornerstone investors, right? They've now become so common. And it's a way to drum up excitement, a way to build support for the IPO, for the listing day, retail investors, they could look at Arm's IPO and say, you know, if it's good enough for Amazon, if it's good enough for NVIDIA and Intel and et cetera, the biggest tech companies out there, it's good enough for us. And not necessarily knowing whether they actually did buy shares or how long they're holding on.
0: Yeah. One, One thing I mentioned just on the Arm too, is that until it's like a better vetted situation as it relates to their exposure to AI, if you look at just the semiconductor index in general, the SOX or the ETF, the SMH that tracks it, the two largest holdings, NVIDIA and Taiwan Semi, they're correcting right now. Taiwan Semi is down about 20% from its all-time highs just made a couple months ago. NVIDIA was trading $500, trading 510 in the post-market in late August and after its huge Q2 results and guidance and it's down trading 436. We have over a 10% correction there. If this AI excitement wasn't in NVIDIA, the semiconductor index would be trading very poorly. Smartphones are not great. Data center has not been uh, at the growth rates that we've seen over the last couple of years. PCs aren't particularly great. So the semiconductor group in general is something that to me, I'd be a little cautious on. AMD, this is one that kind of joined the party with NVIDIA in late May, is down about 20% from its recent highs. To me, ARM, especially with all the overhead, at some point, I would suspect to your point about SoftBank opening, owning 9% of that one. They're going to sell another slug here. You know what I mean? Over that, probably before year end is my guess. So, this is not one that
2: I find particularly interesting.
1: Mas said that he would be holding on, but who knows how long that means. But I agree with you on that point. Throughout the roadshow, Arm tried to paint itself as sort of an AI play. But the question you need to ask, is it AI-centric or is it AI-adjacent? And if it's the latter, you don't know whether that's actually going to turn into something really essential to the shift to generative AI. And as you said, right now, it's businesses, smartphones. That's a declining industry or saturated one, at least.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. Let's hit another name that's, the, again, one of these last few year IPOs in the the digital space. And that's Pinterest, also a name that you know and cover very closely. I remember listening while we were on Fast Money one day, you had an interview with the new CEO. I want to say that was in the spring. Mm. Is that correct? And at the time, the company had been you know suffering from like decelerating growth rates. Obviously, the pull forward during the pandemic made it one of the pandemic winners, in quote here. But the stock has been fairly volatile over the last year and a half. It's trading up about 5% today. They're talking at an analyst meeting about a reacceleration of revenue growth. Thoughts here, because again, a lot of these, and I'm just going to call them internet stocks, and you could throw Meta and Netflix, they bottomed before the NASDAQ bottomed last year. And I thought that was interesting. They got so hard hit, right? Because they were the names that were perceived massive beneficiaries of everyone not being outside and being able to spend that sort of thing in 2020, but that corrected fairly quickly. And some say it overcorrected in late 21 into 22.
1: I think that Pinterest is an interesting name. And you're right, what does it say about the broader internet space? Did they go down too hard? In the case of Pinterest though, they have a fantastic CEO at the helm, right? Bill Reddy, who you referred to, I've known him since his PayPal days. And I always thought he was the most interesting person to talk to there because he just had a way of explaining things and simplifying them. And I think he's bringing that to Pinterest. Pinterest isn't just a place to look for furniture ideas or clothes ideas. It's an e-commerce platform. And that's that's what he's hoping to turn it into. It's interesting you say that maybe the public tech companies are coming back because connecting it to our conversation about Instacart, I wonder what that's going to do to the companies in the IPO pipeline. If they start to see Pinterest and other companies that went public a few years ago start to come back up, they're going to say, if we hold on a little longer, don't take that down round. Maybe it's going to be less of a down round or maybe it's going to be an up round. Who knows? Um, But I think that it will be very interesting how that plays out in the private markets and how that relates to IPOs.
0: I'll tell you this, Dave. If I'm looking at the last couple of years and all the uncertainty that we had around the economy, and then last year, how horrible private valuations were were looking towards the end of 22, how the public you know markets were trading at the end of 2022, they were basically pricing in a near certainty. Of a recession, that recession hasn't hit. So, if you have companies like Pinterest saying that the ad market is starting to get a little better, and you have a Nasdaq that's up thirty percent, a Nasdaq one hundred that's up almost forty percent, an S and P that's up sixteen percent, I think you come to market here because I don't know when it gets better. So, the question that you have to ask yourself is, what are my demands? Like, meaning, like, what do early uh, investors expect? I have a brain drain on talent, right? If they can't finally monetize at some point. How do I use currency for M&A and a whole host of other things? So to me, if we go into a period, let's say next year, where we finally do have that res- recession, public markets will start to sniff it out ahead of time private market valuations, a lot of folks have been holding out, trying not to do those down rounds. You're almost better off doing a public down round and at least having some currency in the public markets, in my opinion. And I look at a name like Pinterest and I say to myself, going back to, okay, if they're talking about reacceleration of revenue growth, here's a company that has 15% of their market cap in cash, no material debt, right? This is one to me that if also they're pivoting a bit more towards e-commerce and I look at that enterprise value and I say to myself, this is M&A target to me. If I'm a huge retailer, if I'm something like a Walmart, which is trading at all-time highs, and I'm thinking about how I have to better compete with an Amazon that just showed us better than expected operating margins in their retail business, we're showing really high margins from that ad business i think it's over 40 billion a year for amazon right now i don't know man i'm putting pinterest and i know you're probably going to poo this i'm putting pinterest in my kind of m a bucket here especially at the current enterprise value and given some of these kind of more optimistic kind of tones and then the last point in late 2021 when we knew that everything was about to come undone when paypal kind of floated that trial balloon about possibly making a bid for pinterest I think you have some folks come back to that. I don't think it's a big payments company. I think it's a big retailer.
1: I'm not going to poo that idea. I think it's an interesting one. One important thing that maybe you left out of why these companies are becoming interesting again, it's profitability, right? And interest rates is when interest rates rose, no longer was it compelling to push that profits off in the future. And if interest rates still aren't going to come down for some time, but they do have that better profitability piece that also makes them a lot more compelling and maybe brings their valuation up again or makes them even more compelling M&A targets. I don't know if the company would do it. And what's curious too, I'm trying to think back to Pinterest, what kind of share structure they have if they have dual class shares and if Ben Silverman still has the voting rights, that would make it difficult. And we've talked about Lyft in the past. The founders have to be on board to do that. You think about an Instacart though, there are no dual class shares. It's at 14 billion, I think, today on its debut. Could be an interesting target Listen,
0: off. You know the deal, right? The IPO market comes back, strategic m and is likely to come back too. And so to me, we've seen private equity was active in late 21, 22 in the software space. It was, SaaS was all the rage here. And so maybe some of these companies, these kind of e-commerce and payments that are much more mature, maybe they need to be retooled. Maybe there's some private equity. Maybe there's some strategic MA. Who knows? Okay. Well, listen, D, I think we covered um, a lot of ground. I do think it's exciting though, like to getting back to this kind of IPO market. These are real companies. These are companies that have been waiting a very long time to tell their stories to the public markets. And I think for your job is what I think is one of the best tech reporters out there. And me as a, just a, kind of goofy talking head also on CNBC. It's just kind of fun to talk about new stories and how they're going to compete with some of the stocks and the companies that we talk about day in and day out.
1: Absolutely. And if you think about the last decade, we've had these companies, these disruptors become household names before they were even investable. So it's very interesting to see them finally come to market. And I personally like it because a lot of them are based in San Francisco and we get to, Talk about them on a daily basis, because they're stock moves.
0: Yeah, and I'll just say one last thing. When I was, when I started in the business, it was 1997, I was working in a long short hedge fund, and we traded all sorts of stocks, and because I was the youngest guy on the desk, I was tasked with learning about YHO and AOL and LCOS, and you probably don't even remember Some of these tickers, AMZN, what's interesting about what you just said is they were not household names. These companies went public in 97, 98, and 99, and most people, you had to be a very early adopter to be buying books and dvds on the internet in 1998 or ebay was obviously one of them and at the time ebay struggled from the fact that there was not a payments layer and obviously they bought paypal a few years later but these were not household names so not only were you taking a shot on a company that was not profitable and like really small revenue and it seemed like a dream because very few people were familiar with the internet then and really did not have a grasp of what the promise and how it was going to affect almost every industry and to your point We've all been using Instacart and DoorDash and all these companies and these services long before they ever came to the CNBC screen. So to me, I think that's a really interesting distinction.
1: And in a way, you're now touching on my sort of favorite pet topic is a lot of growth that the ordinary investor has missed out on. Sure, there's allocations for the institutional investors, but very small when they're still private companies. And so where you were able to invest in Amazon and Apple and eBay and some of these companies from the beginning and see the upside of that growth is big questions around the current class of disruptors, whether or not their best growth days happened in the private markets and the VCs were the ones that got to cash out and make a load of money. So I'm happy to see it, see them go public and at least for retail investors to start learning more about their financials. And that's really key is they become more transparent.
0: Hopefully, you and I are going to have a lot more tech IPOs to talk about in the not-so-distant future. Dear Bosa, she is the host of CNBC's Tech Check. I really appreciate you being back with me this week. Also, stick around for my conversation with Katie Stanton of Moxie Ventures and Quinn Kramer, CEO, co-founder of Daily. Thanks a lot, Debo. A pleasure. Cross Riverbank member FDIC. I am here with Katie Stanton. She's the founder and general partner at Moxie Ventures and Quinn Kramer, who is the CEO and co-founder at Daily. Welcome guys to the pod. Thanks for having me.
3: So good to be here.
0: All right, Katie, I've been very fortunate for you to dig into the Moxie portfolio, and and you've picked out some really brilliant founders here. And and Quinn is one of them, just reading the story, just his career in general in tech as a multiple-time founder. And we're going to talk about daily infrastructure, software company focused on video, and a lot of stuff actually near and dear to my heart as a creator. So I'm really interested in hearing about the company and some of the changes that you guys are probably involved in right now with some of the the, the latest tech crazes that you actually have been involved in for years. You're not a Johnny come lately as it relates to structuring unstructured data and thinking about solving big problems using machine learning and AI and the like here. But Katie, you usually have a really good story how you've met a lot of the founders that Moxie's invested in. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came across Quinn? And 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 I think it goes back uh, decades, maybe.
3: It actually does. Funny So I was introduced to Quinn and Nina, the founders of daily by I, I think it was Moshe Lifshitz from Shrug Capital, who is a great friend, great co-investor. He introduced me to Quinn and Nina. And as I got to know them, they were actually the first married couple I had met as co-founders. And I had a lot of questions about that. Like, how is that going to work? And it's awesome. So like the TLDR there, it's awesome. They're great founders, really love what they're building. But I think the story you're alluding to is that I before Moxie, I had this wonderful experience working for President Obama and I staffed him for his first interview with All Africa. And it turns out that the All Africa journalist happened to be Quinn's dad. I was like, wait, your name sounds familiar. And I saw something in your LinkedIn about All Africa. Let's talk about that. So I was really excited to get to know Quinn. You know, three-time entrepreneur, has been around the space. He's an engineer. He's a founder. He comes from a family of journalists. He's just a really interesting person. So it has just been an honor and privilege to have worked with Quinn for the past number of years.
0: Quinn, so let's talk a little bit about that background because it seems like you are an engineer by training academically and, and you're a multiple-time founder, but you also have a leg into journalism. And, and Katie just alluded a, a, a little bit to that. Talk, Talk to me a little bit about what led you to The Daily, when you guys founded it in 2016, what were some of the experiences that kind of helped inform that decision? Because video at the time, a a lot to do with, I think, the explosion of social media and what was really blowing up. It was something, it was a kind of a must-have feature, right? And then obviously in the years since, that changed a little bit for enterprise. And I know that you serve both of these kind of verticals in a way, but talk to me a little bit about the background with media and how you led to the founding of Daily in 2016. I
2: grew up in a house with two journalists as parents. I was smiling a little bit when you started the recording and turned on your radio voice because I used to listen to my mom do radio hits. And I know that that professional radio voice and I had such warm fuzzy feelings for me. I got interested in the internet when I was in college because it was an extension of the way I'd grown up as a global network that could connect everybody together. And I thought, wow, this is like amazing technology and ended up just getting deeply excited about the technology that powers the internet. I was really lucky. I went to the MIT Media Lab for grad school, built a bunch of big programmable network simulations, got more and more interested in how do you build these really big technology stacks that connect the whole world. So for a long time, I've been obsessed with these large-scale real-time networking problems and video and audio in particular from a technical level. And then it's amazing to be able to support things like journalists doing live broadcasts from their cell phones from anywhere in the world now, which wasn't possible 15 years ago and now is the norm. I actually dropped out of grad school to help my parents get all Africa started, transitioning from mostly analog to a mostly digital world. And I was just going to do that for six months. But we built this big platform and we did a bunch of super interesting stuff. And I ended up staying for six years and never went back to grad school. And then I moved to LA to start a company with a friend from the MIT Media Lab to build an operating system for the next generation of computing. We all had all these devices all around, but it felt like we needed a new operating system to leverage them. And my friend had done the gestural interfaces for the Film Minority Report. So we had this really amazing telegenic demo reel that Steven Spielberg had spent I don't know how many millions of dollars filming, which was a nice thing for a startup. And we built a whole bunch of stuff and had a whole bunch of Fortune 500 companies as customers. Did that for eight years. So that was a great learning experience for an engineer, being a founder who's an engineer, essentially taking a science project and turning it into an actual product that you can sell at scale and then scaling up a company to do that. When we exited that company, I took a couple years off trying to decide whether I wanted to do a Another startup again, because startups are a marathon. But I had never lost that interest in building these tech stacks that kind of democratize communication and that make it possible to connect in all sorts of new ways on the internet. And I felt like a bunch of the stuff we had done at that startup, Oblong, which was super high end kind of video collaboration environments, could be made available to everybody in the whole world on your phones. And my wife said she would start another company with me if I wanted to do it. So we jumped in to build the world's best video tech stack and infrastructure for developers. So we make APIs for developers. We're a developer tools company. If you're familiar with the SaaS landscape, we're like Stripe, but instead of payments, we do video. And the most fun thing for us is when other engineers use our stuff for things we never could have imagined.
0: I I like the analogy Stripe for video. And when you think about Stripe and the growth that they've had, the idea of of people monetizing whatever it is on the web, Stripe enabled that, right? Enabled that kind of trusted middle layer of payments. How how do you guys think about that? Because when you think about creators, they're generally looking to monetize their content. Talk to us how you think about the the engine that you built and how it works across a stack, if you will, because I think you have one of these sorts of technologies that people probably take for granted as a user, but if you're a builder, this is something that is core to that product that you're offering to the public or that you're using across the enterprise.
2: I think that's right. The challenge and the promise are the same thing. The promise is that video is just everywhere now and it's only going to be more everywhere and it's used for everything and it's on all our phones and in all our websites. So we do things ranging from telehealth to virtual poker games, and they're all amazing. The challenge there is, how do you build enough of a footprint of technology features and infrastructure that you can serve all those use cases, sort of the Microsoft Office problem where like nobody could ever compete with Microsoft Office after a certain point because they had a billion features and every user used 5% of them. So that's the sort of surface area of the problem from building a product and designing a company perspective. And then pricing is hard, right? If you're trying to serve telehealth customers and you're trying to serve live streamers on TikTok, the pricing models for those customers are different. So how do you price what you do? I don't think we've got all the answers. And I think you see even very experienced, like large scale successful startups still struggling with things like pricing. But that's why we have people like Katie Uh, on our cap table so we can ask her for advice.
3: So I'm going to ask you the most annoying question, which is what separates or differentiates daily from Zoom? Why wouldn't a telehealth provider use Zoom or a poker team use Zoom?
2: Zoom is great for an end user video product and we don't try to compete with Zoom. And if one of our potential customers is super happy on Zoom, we're like, you shouldn't spend any engineering resources changing out something you're happy with. The differentiator is that on Zoom, if you're building an application, you don't own that user experience inside Zoom. Zoom is an end user experience. It is what it is. If you want to change the UX or change the branding or own the data that's produced during that session, you don't want to give... Of that user experience away to a third party like Zoom, you want to own it all. So we're pipes that you own the data that's going through. And you can completely customize the experience you build on top of us.
3: You touched on this a little bit, but would love to hear your thoughts around categories. I think you had mentioned healthcare is a big category. I know from some of our conversations, how you're HIPAA compliant and you're differentiated that way as well. Can you talk a little bit about why, what types of healthcare partners would benefit from daily? Why, what novel novelties you might be seeing as well?
2: We see... We saw telehealth grow incredibly during the pandemic, and I think we all saw that and saw why. And what that did was it pulled forward a bunch of regulatory and technology and kind of just habits, changes that were happening anyway, but happening more slowly. And I think it was really beneficial to the healthcare landscape to add telehealth as a legitimate option for first-line care. It opens up more access, hopefully improves outcomes just to be able to hop on a video call with a provider. Post-pandemic, what we're seeing is that change now becoming something that you can leverage for more utility in everything you do with healthcare. For example, this week, we're releasing a whole new set of APIs we're super excited about that let our telehealth customers automatically generate clinical notes documentation after a session. A couple months ago, our customers started coming to us and saying, our customers, their customers, the healthcare providers spend like 10 or 15 hours a week writing up clinical notes like a third of their work week. It's a huge time sink. It's not particularly creative work, but it has to be done. Our customers were starting to see like large language models summarize YouTube videos and sales team tools that could do a really good job producing action items after a sales call, and they were saying, "Could we use this in the healthcare space?" So we've got this audio data already flowing through our systems and we've got HIPAA compliant infrastructure. And we know a lot about engineering new products. So we dug in and tested and listened and learned and built these new APIs that use GPT-4 to generate a first draft of clinical notes that a provider can then check over, edit if they need to, put into their electronic health record system. And the early adopters of these new APIs are going from spending you know, 10 or 15 hours a week to spending an hour a week writing up clinical notes. It's like a massive quality of life and productivity improvement. So we're super excited about what we're seeing in healthcare post-pandemic as telehealth and some other new technology changes that happened faster than they would have otherwise are really just slotting into people's everyday lives.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Quinn, that the, the Zoom example that Katie alluded to for everything that you're releasing just now, it's just not, You just couldn't do any of that with that product offering. And you mentioned something about the pull forward of certain behaviors during the pandemic. And I think it's interesting, again, to stay on Zoom for a second here. Again, a great company down 90% in the public markets from its all-time highs in late 2021. Here's a stock that trades at 15 times earnings. Okay, just to put this in perspective, the S&P 500 trades at about 20 times earnings. It's a very profitable company with nearly 80% gross margins. Now, the problem is it's only growing low single digit earnings and sales, it's got 28% of its market cap in cash. And again, we're zooming out a little bit from the private markets. What do you think is being underappreciated by kind of their place as an incumbent in the market and just this market share that they've been able to establish? And I think it's very sticky. It's just not growing. And so I always find it interesting sometimes because what you just described about what you guys are doing is very different from that product and the services they provide. And you are going to be embedded in some of the biggest products and services that emerge from all of the excitement in and around these generative ai models and large language models is, is that it is that like investors are looking at that saying that was so 2021 this is going to be so 2025 through 2030 or something like that
2: i think it's partly just an overcorrection zoom's a really well run company great engineering great management and it doesn't feel quite like the price for zoom has settled out to where it really should be but i do think you're right i think investors are always looking for the next thing. And Zoom has a really good AI story, but it's not fully cohered yet. And so the market, I believe, wants to hear that kind of next iteration of the AI story for Zoom. The other piece there is that Microsoft has done such an amazing job positioning around AI and Teams is Zoom's existential competitor. So if Microsoft can continue to execute so impressively on the AI front, that is a headwind for Zoom. We'll see. It's very hard to imagine Microsoft continuing to execute as well as they have, because it's just been incredible over the past year. On the other hand, they've built this amazing, amazing foundation with the partnership with OpenAI and a bunch of other stuff they've done.
0: It's interesting. You almost wonder, Microsoft, again, this partnership, without it, they'd be left in the dust. People would be talking about Microsoft and their inability to integrate these into their productivity tools or search or or, or the like here. So it it is interesting because this is the sort of partnership that we have not seen in, in a very long time in tech. And I know that you've been, in Silicon Valley for a while and and as a founder, but like talk talk to me a little bit, you kind of alluded to just your AI strategy a little bit. Let's just think about how has this changed your strategy as a CEO of a company? Because again, we talked these are things that you've been working into your business model for years now, but was it the speed in which you had to make some of these changes and skate to where the puck was going? Or was this something in a way that has always been part of your, business plan, but just the introduction of chat GPT-4 and the, the uptake of it is something that you guys just had to turn on a dime here and, and, and move quicker at the integration.
2: We definitely turned on a dime. I feel like I haven't been surprised that often in my career the way I was surprised by the chat GPT release. It was a step function improvement in what large language models can do Computers historically have just been really bad at taking, as you said earlier, unstructured data and doing anything valuable with it. And GPT-3.5 and now GPT-4 are actually amazing at taking unstructured data and analyzing, prioritizing, sequencing, extracting, structuring it. And it it is a real new capability and it truly feels like a, a platform shift. What we did at Daily was just slot this into our overall worldview, which is our job is to build concentric circles of value for our customers. So we started with real-time video. Then we put a bunch of effort into building great pipelines for recording and live streaming, sort of broadcast use cases and all kinds of recording use cases. And this just felt like the next circle for us that we could expand into. We already have all this data we're routing all over the world every day. We can help our customers get more value from that data by building really great developer tools that lets you pipe that data through AI-powered workflows. So that's how we've approached it, is that it's an adjacent value prop that we can build for our customers that also fits really nicely into kind of our engineering architecture.
3: Quinn, so you talked a little bit about healthcare. I totally get that. The advance of telemedicine, especially during COVID, has been a great tailwind for a lot of companies, including daily. Can you talk about any other verticals, maybe not poker or maybe poker, that have been really strategic for you and maybe ones that may have caught you by surprise? Maybe poker was one of them.
2: It's easy to talk about stuff that you just think is going to change the world so i want to first talk about education and then we'll go a little broader but the education stuff is just so exciting like being able to connect kids to tutors and virtual classes and give everybody in the world access to top-tier educational content and real-time mentoring is i i think we're not yet aware of how big a change that's going to be for the whole world over the next 20 years and we see The thing there that surprised me was how much growth we see in India specifically with online online education. So we have like virtual education customers all over the world, but India has just latched on to the potential of online education in an amazing and super impressive way. So we power a bunch of education stuff in India. That happens to fit really nicely with the new capabilities of AI. We're seeing, and this is not a customer of ours, but I absolutely love what they're doing. We're seeing Khan Academy build custom AI tutors that are personalized for kids. And some of our customers are doing similar things as well. So education is just super inspiring.
1: That's
3: just a double click on that. So Khan Academy is a customer.
2: They're not, sorry. Khan Academy is not a customer, but I really love what they're doing.
3: Okay. I hope you're listening, Khan Academy, because we've got a great platform for you. And And can you tell us a little bit about the customers in India? Are they um, colleges, high schools? How are you finding them? How are they finding you?
2: They find us because I think we've done a pretty good job publishing really good content for developers. So if you Google technical documentation about how to do real-time video, we come up. And we're self-serve platform, again, like Stripe. So you can just sign up and start using our stuff, which is the preferred onboarding motion for engineers, right? Engineers typically don't love to talk to salespeople. They love to try stuff out and then maybe talk to salespeople, which is always a challenge. As you scale up a SaaS company and add sales, you have to make sure that your new sales motion as you go up market continues to have the core DNA of being a great self-serve developer platform. And it's all over the map. It's one-on-one tutoring and it's big virtual classes and it's exam prep. And it's then some kind of outlier use cases that are much bigger than I expected, like exam proctoring. So how do you make sure that people can take tests remotely and they don't have to get on a train and travel two hours to take like an entrance exam for college.
3: That's awesome. Any other, I'm curious too, like besides India, any other regions that have really driven adoption using daily that you've seen, not just by verticals, but by regions and countries?
2: We're pretty broadly global, which is a fun thing about, I think, being a SaaS platform today. We probably, in terms of revenue, we're probably about half US, about 30% Europe and about 20% Asia. What we don't do is compete directly in China. And that's a painful thing about the internet today, you can't offer communication services in China without making all your data available to the Chinese government. And so we have just decided that we are not going to play in that market because we're a data privacy first company. Like We don't touch your data, we don't own your data, and we're not going to open up our data to anybody else, your data to anybody else. I think we're going to see more and more, I think it's obvious to everybody now, conflicts around business models and China. And unfortunately, we're moving towards a world where it feels like there's going to be two internets, a Chinese internet and a global internet. And I hope we can find a way, as a human species, to fix that problem before it gets worse. But right now, there's a real bifurcation for what we do, especially communication services between kind of Chinese and non-Chinese rules, requirements, and infrastructure.
0: Quinn, give us a sense of some of the things that you've seen um, customers of yours um, using your technology and combining it with some of the tools that we've just talked about in in the generative AI space. Are are, are you again? You said that it's not too common that you've been surprised by things. Are, are the things that are happening just in, in such a short period of time that you've just never seen this sort of progress? Or are, are there any examples that you could give us? Because again, I, I think a lot of us, you know, maybe normies and maybe Katie and I would consider ourselves in that camp. We downloaded chat GPT 4. we might've paid for the subscription. I just don't go to it anymore. I'm not using it. You know what I mean? And still there's some sort of service that I'm already paying for that is just absolutely improved in a meaningful way. And I haven't had that yet with one of these chatbots. So give us some examples of things that you're seeing seeing and maybe that our listeners, our viewers should be on the lookout for that are gonna be happening in the next six to you know twelve months or so.
2: We're speed running the AI hype cycle, right? It feels like everything's happening even faster than it ever has before. So I think you're totally right. Like these early end user products, we've tried them out and there aren't necessarily applications for everybody yet that are super obvious. Just like there weren't applications for the GPS sensor in your iPhone for the first 18 months or so until a whole bunch of new location aware apps shipped in like 2009, 2010, kind of transformed our view of what it means to live in the world because we have this like mapping device with us all the time. And I think we're at that early stage. But what I think is going to happen is that the summarization use of what's happening around you is just going to become part of the fabric of life that we Look back in 10 years and we can't see how we lived without. Like, why do I have to manually keep a grocery list? Super silly, mundane example. But like, the computing devices that are all around me all the time know exactly what I need to go buy. They just haven't previously had enough, you know, kind of unstructured data to structured data tooling to make it happen. But, but it's me. funny,
0: the skeptic in me, though. Like I, I, we lived through this 10 years ago. You remember Alexa, you remember you'd put this little hockey puck in your kitchen and then you had all those little buttons that you'd put in the cabinets and it was supposed to do all that for you. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? And, and I'm sure there was a lot of machine learning in that and there was recommendation engines embedded. So part of me is I look at the frenzy that I see and the valuations and the capital that are being committed in the private markets right now. And then I see the hundreds of billions of dollars that have been accrued in value in the public markets before we actually have any meaningful use cases, I think, like commercialized ones at the moment. And I wonder, going back to what we just said about Zoom and the example of the pandemic, are we doing the same thing again, like right now, you know you know what I'm saying, on, on a massive scale?
2: As an engineer, I'm like AI neutral forever and ever, which is why I was surprised. When we chat GPT and GPT 3.5 came out, because I'd seen incremental improvements in AI for 25 years and they were good, but not astounding. And then these large language models hit this inflection point, this tipping point, and they can genuinely do things we couldn't do before. So I think about this as like Alexa crawled so that GPT-4 can run. And GPT-4 is the beginning of this. There's gonna be another generation of these models later this year and next year. I think we're under hyping this stuff personally, not in the sense that every individual investment is going to be a winner, because that's definitely not true. And there are investments that people are pumping too much capital into on a one-off individual basis. But as a sector, this is the next platform shift. And if you invest in the next platform shift, you make... Money. Like that's the history of technology.
0: Katie, as a VC, and again, you started Moxie what three years ago or so. You've seen dozens, if not hundreds, of companies that you've been involved with or advising and, and close to. Are you seeing what Quinn's seeing in a way from your perch? Because again, as a builder, as a CEO, a co founder who's obviously got to be very nimble and he's serving all different sorts of customers in different verticals. Do you feel that same way? If a company comes to you, if there's a pitch down, and it's some sort of digital company and they don't have an AI plan right now, is that like a non-starter for you?
3: It's really interesting. I remember working at Google, we would have a mobile team and that became really antiquated really quickly because everything is mobile. And at Twitter, we had an international team and that became antiquated because everything is international. I think the same is true with AI. Everything is AI. That's table stakes at this point. So anyone, when I see a pitch deck, someone's like, it is AI fueled software. <laughs> it's immediate past because, of course, it's AI fueled. Everything is like, what's next? What's so unique? What's so special? So, I think for investors, for us, we have to really sift through the noise. And ultimately, it's about the founder. So, in the case of Quinn and Nina, here are thoughtful, smart, experienced people who deeply understand a category and have a unique insight as to how to make it bigger and better and why people are going to buy this product and use this product in their lives. And it's finding that versus this is AI for bloody blah and something that can easily be replicated and also sifting the real founders from a lot of those horrors who are out there looking to kind of like, I want to be a founder too (laughs) in the middle of this hype.
2: I I did an internal presentation at Daily in July because we have a bunch of old curmudgeonly engineers like me who are skeptical about each new hyped thing. And it was really important that we all get totally aligned inside Daily at exactly what at the level Katie just said. Everything is AI. We can use it everywhere. That doesn't mean every line of code we write has anything to do with AI. It doesn't change our core value prop, but it is a new piece of leverage that's really important. And one of the slides in that presentation was you've banned, worst case and best case for this new technology in terms of impact. And my worst case banned was this is the next relational database. Like you don't write a big piece of software without a relational database involved somehow. And you haven't for 20 years. And we take it for granted now, but they're everywhere And the best case is that this is as big a deal as the internet. So pretty wide confidence bands in how fast this stuff has an impact, but there's no doubt, I think, about how broad the impact is across all software.
0: I can only imagine what it's been like for your team over the last few years because all the demands from COVID and you just gave all the use cases prior to the kind of introduction of this large language model, which it's probably been a a three or four year sprint for you guys over there at Daily. Quid Kramer, I really appreciate you joining us on the podcast. I, I hear you're a listener, which is Absolutely amazing, Katie. we got to send them out some swag, some OK Computer swag. And I really appreciate, Katie, you joining me again here on the pod. You always bring uh, some of our best guests. So I really appreciate you guys both being here.
2: Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Dan.
0: If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.